Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back at the Singapore Grand Prix and ask if what happened could cost Sebastian Vettel the World Championship. Welcome to another edition of the Autosport Podcast, brought to you from a hotel room in, I was going to say sunny Singapore, but actually on the, the day after the race we've had quite a hefty downpour. My name is Ed Straw, Editor-in-Chief of Autosport, and joining me to look back over a massively significant Singapore Grand Prix in the World Championship battle is first Anthony Rollinson. Now Anthony, this is your first Singapore Grand Prix for a few years, and I think you've uh, you've enjoyed the reminder of, of quite what a great event this is. That's right, yeah, I haven't been since 2013. And it does live long in the memory because it's not a Grand Prix like any other. There's a night race aspect, crazy weather, great circuit, unique atmosphere. But um, it reminded me how much uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And I think that's one of the reasons you, you see so many fans coming here, actually. There's a lot of people just around enjoying the event. It's a really, really great event. And I should add, actually, on the subject of fans, it's got some of the best general admission areas to watch. If you come in Friday practice, there's so many places where in the general admission area you can get so close to the track really see these cars on the edge, so I'd recommend it to anyone. Also joining me is Lawrence Barreto of Autosport. Now, Lawrence, how have you coped with this weekend? Because one of the interesting things about Singapore is the slightly strange time shift that you have to, to go through in this weekend, or not time shift coming, coming through from Europe. And I think it's very easy for everyone to underestimate quite how weird that is for when you're out in this very particular time zone. Definitely, you find yourself wandering around uh, the streets at three or four in the morning looking for food, and obviously most people are in bed, so there aren't many options here. So How, how's that different to what you normally do? <laughs> um, it's actually very easy um, to come to Singapore and do this because you, there's no jet lag, because if you try and stay on the time zone when you when you get over here, you're just basically doing what you did at home. So for, for journalists and people here who are trying to stay on the same time zone, it's perfect. It's quite nice to be able to get away with waking up at midday on a race day, though, isn't it? And uh, not be late. It, it is a bit of a strange brain shift, the whole thing. But when you get used to it, it's all right. You know, leaving the pressure at two in the morning or half past two is, is actually odd when you look at your watch. You just have to get around it. It's just a bit odd, isn't it, generally? Yeah, it just... Discombobulating, as Stuart Codling might say. And actually, it's worth noting how strange it is for the teams as well. Because on, on Saturday, going into the track, we're not covered by the curfew that the teams 
have to abide by obviously operational personnel aren't allowed in before a certain time and, and we walked into the track went through the paddock gates and there are a whole host of team personnel just stacked on the outside waiting to get in because they're just not used to how the how the time times change so yeah it is quite an unusual unusual environment uh, but it also produced a, a pretty fascinating grand prix seismic significance in the world championship battle and the big question here is has this cost sebastian vettel the world championship we won't really know that until the next half dozen races are out of the way but this race will be remembered for what happened in the first dozen seconds of the race sebastian vettel on pole not a great start Max Verstappen, better start. Kimi Raikkonen from fourth, even better start, sending the three of them on a on a literal collision course. So, Lawrence Barreto, what do you make of it? Who is to blame? The stewards say nobody. What do you think? Well, I asked Jacques Villeneuve that question after the race, and he was flat out it was Sebastian's fault. When I initially saw it, I thought it was Max's fault, actually. But when you saw a couple more replays, um, it's pretty clear that Seb just pulls right across and it might be that Kimmy was unsighted, so he didn't he didn't know that he needed to give a little bit more space. But I think in this on this occasion it was Seb Salt, definitely. I think I would classify it as a racing incident, but I do think if if you were to apportion blame, more blame would go on to Seb. Uh, I would say Kimmy is actually basically blameless because he just got a blinder and kept his foot in, kept the car completely straight. I think Max, you could possibly say if he were a more retiring type of driver, he might have backed out of it. I think he did at the end try to back out of it. But, you know, they're going for the lead at the start of a Grand Prix. It's not what they're meant to do. They're not, it's not what they're programmed to do, really. And actually, they shouldn't because they're Formula 1 drivers. So I think, you know, Vettel's tried that chop manoeuvre plenty of times in the past and generally got away with it. Uh, yesterday, he didn't. The way I look at it is ultimately you've got three drivers. Two of them were basically driving in a straight line on a straight bit of track. Mm. I think... If you're Sebastian Vettel, if you're a driver, as soon as you're on a straight and you pull a move that requires another car or other cars to to move, to adjust, to lift or to vanish, then you are you are the trigger for it, unfortunately. Yeah, you're compromising and, yourself, aren't you? Exactly. And I don't really see where, where Max Verstappen was able to go. He was caught in a caught in a Ferrari pincer. Agree completely. Raikkonen could have done absolutely nothing as he was driving between a pit wall and, a, and another car. Nothing he could have done, and Verstappen pretty much the same. There was just that point where if you watch the onboard where you can see Verstappen just think, oh, no, there's, there's just no way out of this. There's no no conservative conservative move. It's worth briefly us having a little bit of a look at the stewards' decision. I'll just quickly read the verdict so we've got the, the, correct, uh, the correct context. Vettel was investigated. No post-race penalty. Obviously, it would have been a grid penalty for the next race had they chosen to do something. Now, the the decision said, driver of car 7, Kimi Raikkonen, had a very good start and was able to attempt overtaking of car 33, Max Verstappen, on the left-hand side. At the same time, car 5, Sebastian Vettel, which had a slower start, moved to the left-hand side of the track. Car 33 and car 7 then collided, resulting in a chain collision with car 5 and ultimately car 14, Fernando Alonso, at the next turn. Car 7, 5 and 33 had to retire immediately as a result of the incident and car 14 retired some laps thereafter. The stewards consider that no driver was found to have been wholly or predominantly to blame for the incident and will therefore take no further action. Now this line, no driver found to have been wholly or predominantly to blame, that's the rule change for this year. You only get a penalty if a driver is wholly or predominantly to blame. Now, I think we've all agreed that Vettel was at least predominantly to blame. So what do we think about the stewards' decision? I'm glad no further action was taken, actually. just But that's probably a personal opinion rather than a sort of forensically thought through one. I just think accidents happen in racing. Every now and again, you're going to have a first corner shunt. It wasn't as if it was some vicious squeeze like the one that Michael Schumacher put on Rubens Barrichello at Hungary those years ago. It wasn't in that category of, of thuggery, actually. It was just a sort of bit of an aggressive start move. No one got hurt, you know, which is important. Everybody walked away. You know, I think it's probably about right. How about you, Lawrence? Um, I think there's prob- I think I would lean towards Sebastian should have probably got a penalty or, or, or of some form, uh, whether it was just license points on his license or a grid penalty. I take the point that it's a racing incident and and there wasn't any kind of intent in it. But the fact of the matter is, he it, it, it was his move that caused what happened. So I said, from that point of view, I, I just feel that he, he should have got something out of it. I'm going to do a spectacular piece of fence sitting here and say that in many ways I agree with both of you. I think if you want to look at it, was he wholly or predominantly to blame? Well, yes. Therefore, if you've been given a grid penalty, you'd have thought, yeah, probably fair enough. But I do quite like the principle of allowing accidents to happen. 
it raises an interesting question about the license points. You mentioned you could have been given some license points there. And the way the license points system seems to operate is you only actually get points if you get another penalty alongside it. But I'd have thought that would be a classic case where you say, right, there's three points on your license. We're not going to take any other action, but that is something that can go towards your cumulative total. And he's already got something like seven seven points anyway, and you get 12 points, you get a ban, just like a, a UK road driving license. So I think it's quite a nice outcome in a way because the race was ruined for Ferrari and Vettel. It may well have cost them the championship. Unfortunate for Max Verstappen, but he can't be raised back from, from retirement and get anything back out of it. I, I see it as a fairly sensible, pragmatic kind of move. Yeah, although it's, it's I can't... like there was punishment enough already, wasn't there? Both Ferraris DNF'd um, on the spot. So, I mean, that's a pretty bad outcome for Ferrari and Vettel. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I, I couldn't say to Lawrence, there's no, yeah, no, you're wrong. He shouldn't have been... He, it was right he wasn't given a good penalty because by some other measures, maybe it wasn't correct. But I do think that the stewards need to have room for manoeuvre in the grey area in the middle. Everyone talks about consistency, but everything's never quite the same. I think there was a little bit of a cop-out maybe in their statement because the way I read it, they mentioned the Raikkonen and Verstappen collision as the initial one. It says car 5, which had a slower start, moved to the left-hand side of the track, semicolon, car 33 and car 7 then collided, resulting in, in what happened. And it's like they haven't made the causal link emphatically between Vettel moving across and the collision of the other two cars. So they've kind of found a way to, to do it technically okay. It's racing, isn't it? It's good to allow accidents to happen. And in general this year, I think F1's been pretty good at doing that. But yeah, no question. Vettel's fault and if he'd been stung with a grid penalty well more fool him for being too aggressive off the line well one thing that struck me though is I think once again it showed Vettel's um if you like hot-headedness and that impetuosity that still marks his driving because he didn't need to do that there and if he'd just been a little bit less aggressive possibly just a little bit more moderate in his driving if you, th- if you think of the way that the circuit goes you've got the left hand and then immediately there's a right he didn't need to put that hard a squeeze on Verstappen at all. He could have just run side by side through turn one. He'd already have had the line for turn two. Presumably from there he'd have pulled away and he'd have been clean to turn three. So he totally didn't need to do what he did. He didn't need to be that heavy with Verstappen, but he, he was. Uh, and we've seen that quite a few times in the past. I mean, Baku's a classic example this year. When he gets the red mist, he can still blow up. Even even a driver at his level can still do it. it is, I think it's his fatal flaw. Well, not fatal, that's a slight exaggeration, but I think it's his, a point of real weakness that Vettel has. And I think that's probably going to undo his title challenge this year because this was a race that he should have won. Ferrari should have got a massive amount of points and he should have had that in the back of his head that, you know, looking at the races that are coming up, if he wants to put pressure on Lewis, he needs to score big here. Even if he had lost a position or two at that point, he was still two or three places ahead of Lewis at that point. You know, I just think it, in his head he wasn't quite thinking about the longer term effects of what he was doing. Yeah, he was so good on Saturday. I mean, that quality lap, you know, that's as good a lap as I've seen Vettel do ever, right on the limit. I mean, as on the limit as you can be, that, that wall touch, you know, a millimetre further, that would have been a shunt. A slightly greater angle of impact, it would have been a shunt. And it wasn't. He got away with it. Brilliant pole time. So he won Saturday um, and totally blew Sunday. You could argue perhaps that it reflects the importance Ferrari was putting on this race. This was was literally a must win. It's probably the last track where you'd say, yeah, Ferrari will emphatically have a decisive advantage and be able to walk all over Mercedes. So Vettel will have known how important it was. And in that phase when he made a, a slightly slow start, and then there was a little bit of wheel spin, I think, as he went through the second phase of, of it. And you can actually see, if you watch the, the footage, he gets the poor launch, has the little bit of wheel spin in the second phase. He looks across to his left and thinks, oh, this isn't great. I don't think he's got any idea what Raikkonen's doing. I don't think he can see him. Probably wouldn't have been able to see him, would he? So he's probably thinking, oh, I'll put the squeeze on Max. He'll move over a bit. Now, you can say he had no way of knowing Raikkonen was there, but it's the start of a Grand Prix. There is nowhere on that run to the first corner where you should not anticipate a car could be mm. because that's the nature of, of the starts. And it just happened to be that Raikkonen had, had hooked up, especially when it's in wet conditions and yeah. you've got some people on inters, some people on wets. There's always going to be a much bigger variance. So for me, it wasn't a percentage play. That was the thing that baffled me because I think like I said, he's going for a championship. Yeah, even if he'd lost the lead to Verstappen, he'd have still been ahead of Hamilton, so it's still been a gain. Could have then still beaten Verstappen. As it happened, Raikkonen would have been in the lead anyway, I suspect. And that would have probably given them a strategic advantage and chances are Vettel would have won the Grand Prix even without track position at that first corner. So I'm sure he'd be kicking himself. 
He'd have, he'd have finished ahead of Lewis, wouldn't he? I mean, on balance, you, you would say he would have finished ahead of Lewis. And that was yesterday's objective, even though, yes, a win would have been the ideal outcome for Ferrari and Vettel. Finishing ahead of Lewis is is the goal at every race now, isn't it? And it certainly is now, but it's, it definitely was going into Sunday to stay ahead of the, the guy in silver who's just taken the championship lead and who now leads it by 28 points. So, yeah, it was a spectacular um, fail by Ferrari, actually. Yeah, it's it's just the the worst thing you can do, and it it was the perfect storm for Ferrari and for Vettel in terms of a disaster. Poor decision from Vettel, a brilliant start from Raikkonen. Had he not underachieved a bit in qualifying, he was struggling through the first two days of the weekend. In fact, qualifying was slightly better than perhaps indicated, but that put Raikkonen a bit further back. He could make this brilliant start. Verstappen made this kind of in between start. All of these things came together just to create this this disastrous combination of things but Vettel was the was the key ingredient and that's probably if it doesn't cost him the world championship it's it's slashed his percentage chance of winning it and I think we haven't seen Hamilton making that sort of error of judgment this year in terms of in, in terms of what he's doing on track either that or the or the Baku laps of, uh, of Vettel so what do you think Lawrence do you think we've kind of seen the decisive difference between Vettel and Hamilton? I think so. And I think it's also, it doesn't bode well for Ferrari in that they're quite close. Uh, they're quite on the edge on turbochargers. They're gonna, at some point, they're probably going to have to take a penalty on that. So we're going to get to tracks where they're already struggling and then they're going to find themselves 10 places further back and having to fight through the field. And I just think now it, 28 points, that's what one race win. There's still you know 150 on the table. But I just think it's going to be very difficult now for, for Seb to claw that back. I think it'll take something like what happened yesterday. Um, you, we would never have foreseen both Ferraris wiping each other out. We, you know, that's that's on on the limit of things that happen. It's going to take Lewis to have an outright retirement. You know, proper reverse. Seb wins. Uh, Lewis retires for whatever reason. It will take that kind of swing in a in a Grand Prix weekend to to reset the balance. Otherwise, Lewis does have what you would have to say is now a decisive advantage, more than more than a race win clear. And even if that does happen, it doesn't even quite reset it because that wipes out the loss Vettel had. Yeah. But it doesn't make up for the gain that he should have had. Yeah. So it, it's yeah, just, correct. Yeah. It's just no matter how you look at it for Ferrari, it's just a horrible outcome, just the ultimate disastrous outcome and of course Lewis Hamilton's win even after that happened okay three of the four cars that qualified ahead of him were out so in that regard the path was clearer for him it wasn't even guaranteed Hamilton would have won so this is just this this last kick that Vettel and Ferrari have had so how did Hamilton win this race given that Mercedes were downbeat off the pace and struggling it was a damage limitation race yet somehow Hamilton won against Daniel Ricciardo in a supposedly, and on paper, a theoretically quicker Red Bull. Hamilton spoke a lot yesterday about how much he liked the conditions. So it's a slightly slithery track, which we've never seen before at Singapore. It's always been dry. Um, and, and we do know from past form that, that Hamilton is supreme in those conditions, mixed, mixed grip, and, and he didn't put a wheel wrong yesterday. He was absolutely brilliant in his driving. Uh, Red Bull definitely had some kind of suboptimal setup because throughout the weekend they'd been the form team they topped every practice session okay they got pipped in qualifying but their long run pace was brilliant ed you wrote overnight on friday how strong their long run form looked so it was a real surprise to not it, see it was them. seven cents a lap to, faster yeah, to than, not see them the there. there is this question of a slight gearbox glitch although rebel have said it wasn't enough to cost dan performance dan himself referred to a setup change he said after the race if we were running this again now i'd, I'd, I'd have set the car up differently perhaps they didn't factor in wet conditions it's impossible actually to know at this stage but but definitely that that Red Bull wasn't didn't have the measure of of, of Lewis's car. So every, every time Dan went quicker, there were a couple of times in the middle of the race, around about lap 30, Dan was pushing, setting faster lap times. Every single time Lewis had an answer. It was like punch, counterpunch, and it was a stronger counterpunch always from Lewis. He had a 10-second lead at one point, which he just pulled out. You know, three safety cars. Every time he was able to get away from Dan. You know, it's dominant, actually, from Lewis. It was a really brilliant win. Well, it definitely helped in that three of the cars that should have been Lewis were out by the first corner and that Dan, like you said, had a problem. Um, but Lewis had track position as well. And that's so important as we've seen all the way through this year. We used the the phrase earlier that it was kind of the perfect storm, really. Everything kind of this, just this fell into the perfect storm. Unfortunately, our, our listeners won't be able to see what's happening. <laughs> but a huge thunderstorm has engulfed us at our hotel. Yeah, we, we can see about 20 metres, but 
where there was once Singapore a yeah. few minutes ago, we can now just see gloom. <laughs> this is positively Wagnerian, I think is the phrase. This, this is what happens here. And in fact, it tells you how fortunate we were to actually get a race underway. Because normally when yeah. it rains here, it doesn't have that sort of steady, sensible rain that we had at the start of the race. It absolutely comes down. But uh, this, is, this is a reflection of Sebastian Vettel's mood today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just getting worse. Anyway, we've interrupted Lawrence on, on this one. Um, can't really remember what I was saying. Perfect, perfect, perfect storm. Perfect storm. <laughs> oh, the perfect storm. Of course, yes. I j- and also, I think um, this was an occasion where it just showed once again that Lewis, when he gets an opportunity, he seems to always manage to take advantage of it. He knew today or this weekend was going to be difficult. He saw everything kind of fall into place for him and he didn't put a foot wrong, like Anthony said earlier. And I think the, the track conditions did help a little bit. The track was a little bit cooler. I think it had been up around in the high 30s earlier in the weekend. It was down around 30 in the race. Mercedes have always seemed to struggle in the last few years, certainly in the V6 hybrid era, struggled a bit with tyres. 2015 was the, the extreme case. So that's something they, they carry into here. So I think having that a bit under control helps. I think in Ricardo's case, my understanding of the, the gearbox glitch he had is it did it did have a slight impact on performance in that he couldn't be quite as aggressive on the on the downshifts. He was having to do more lift and coasting, didn't want to lean on the brakes quite so much. And obviously, there were some brake management issues later on, but that didn't explain the difference. Maybe with that problem, had he had track position, I think, as you said, Lawrence, he might have been might well have yeah. been able to still win. And I think potentially he probably would have done. But the simple fact was, I think even without that problem, the pace just just wasn't wasn't quite there. And I, I do wonder if it was a question of Mercedes getting more on top of the car, understanding better the ultra softs. Because if you looked on Friday, there was a there was a really quick little soft long run. It wasn't that long, but it was quick that Hamilton did, which is basically similar to the the long run pace Ricard had on ultra softs. And you kind of think, well, it's a little bit of an outlier. And Hamilton is very good at getting the most out of the softs, but that perhaps indicated the underlying performance was there and they gradually unlocked it, certainly for race pace, even if it didn't have it on a, on a single lap. But it's Hamilton couldn't have scripted that race better, could he? He must be no. absolutely delighted. He said himself, didn't he? Um, he said, that's my miracle, pretty much, after the race. He, what was it he said on Saturday? I, I, I need a miracle to win this one. And he, he basically got it, didn't he? Because you, you would not have written that outcome. Ferraris don't take each other off at the front of a Grand Prix. They just don't, it just doesn't happen, and it did. Well, Seb has finished every race since last year's Malaysian Grand Prix, yeah. so he's been on an incredible run, hasn't he? Yeah. So it's a massive bonus for Mercedes for them to finish first and third. Valtteri Bottas was was relatively had a very mundane weekend. You could see behind the wheel he wasn't anywhere near as comfortable with the amount the car was moving around. Exit phase of the corner, struggling a bit with the throttle. Obviously, it's very very easy. The longitudinal grip on the rears and Singapore, it's it's very taxing to keep the the rear completely under control and not not compromise exits and your and your exit speed. So he had a fairly adequate performance. And I think probably that told you the difference between someone doing an extraordinarily good job in a Mercedes and just somebody doing a, a fine, okay job in a Mercedes. And that's that's to that's massively to, to Hamilton's credit. Lewis is just on a, an incredible roll at the moment. I mean I thought his spa win was stunning. Monza was kind of almost box ticked because you'd have expected him to dominate, but he still did. Yesterday was against the run of play and he was still brilliant. I mean, he's absolutely smashing out of the park at the moment. I don't think we've ever seen him drive better. He's kind of a, he is sometimes a bit of a form driver, isn't he? He gets on these little waves. And I think he said that Silverstone winning there was a, was a huge thing. And basically Silverstone onwards, he's just been... Yeah, seven wins now. Yeah, absolutely stunning. Yeah, and it's, it's starting to look like his year, isn't it? Like in a way that it didn't before this weekend. It's suddenly looking like something's got to go really wrong for him not to win now. Well, Lewis, he's had tough weekends, hasn't he? Russia was really hard. He had like yeah. an off weekend in the way that Bottas had an off weekend here. And Seb's just look uber consistent. Yeah. He's, you know, he's been on on the getting racking up the podiums, had very few poor results. But you're right that kind of that underlying thing was that Lewis has been kind of coming, mm. building some momentum. So ultimately, it's a definition of a great driver, isn't it? It wasn't very promising. He did everything he could. He could, and in fact, the critical thing for Hamilton in that race almost as much as the the wipeout of the three cars was the fact that he just made a really good start. Yeah. He was round Ricardo before that accident had even really happened and that was that was the race winning pass if you like even though it wasn't really noticed because it yeah. was it was unfolding unfolding in the background. I guess we should also mention the other victim of the shunt which is poor old Fernando Alonso who'd also piled down the outside. He was briefly into third place it'd have been second had he had had he lasted to to turn 5 by which time Vettel had had crashed and 
obviously Alonso after the race, usual thing. Yeah, I'd have, I'd have been able to fight for victory. He wouldn't, but he'd have had a shot maybe at a podium and certainly a very good result. He could have had the best result of the McLaren Honda <laughs> new era, but it, it's it's just unfortunate for Alonso, isn't it, that that happened? He was incredibly unlucky because if you, if you look at where he was and the trajectory of the cars that hit him, you know, if he'd been one metre further back or maybe two metres or two two metres ahead, which isn't a lot, actually, when you think about it, it's less than a car length, he'd either have been able to stop or the cars would have flown past him and they just they harpooned him right in the side. I mean, you were talking about perfect storms. I mean, just innocent victim of something happening alongside him. It's just incredible that he could have been, should have been right there at that moment. Bang. And up in the air he went. Yeah, it was the, per- it was the perfect contact, wasn't it? Yeah. Right, down, right yeah. down the middle. It wasn't even a glancing blow. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and normally, when, where the McLarens have been starting, further back in the pack, you would worry about getting hit by another car. But he, he'd, he had so much space at that point around there that he could, was in a relatively safe position had no one else made a contact. So it's just, it's just unlucky, isn't it? Yeah, and there, there was no way to know what was going to happen because Raikkonen was miles over. He was kind of on the pit exit, wasn't he, at one stage? And obviously he couldn't, he couldn't steer or control. So he, he was the, the definition of an unguided unguided missile but it was uh you know it's good to see mclaren showing well and in fact watching from trackside the mclaren look did look very impressive at times i've been skeptical of mclaren's claim they had a brilliant chassis right at the start of the season there were times when it didn't look very good at all on track and the drivers were struggling but watching certainly in friday practice both of the mclarens because stoffel van dorn was driving very well and actually pushing alonso were were really impressive so certainly that'd have been a good a good result there but there were some interesting big results to be had carlos Sainz fourth place always when there's a race like this he finds his way up there he's just one of those drivers and that's a that's a good way to i guess celebrate the fact he's got that that works move to to run so what do we make of his drive what do we make of of Carlos Sainz now as somebody who's now driving for one of Formula 1's, or will be driving for one of Formula 1's works teams. Well, he described it as his greatest race, and I, I think that's com- you know completely fair. He was the one who decided to start on the Inters. I think the top six did, but the McLarens and Nico Hülkenberg went for wet, so he, he kind of took the risk on that part. He did Which qual- allowed him to get ahead of Palmer, who started on the wets. Exactly, and all the way through the race, after he had that problem at the start with the, when the anti-stall kicked in, he didn't make a mistake, didn't make a single mistake. Even when Toro Rosso stuck him on the super softs and everyone else was on the ultra softs, he managed to defend and uh, he tweeted a picture of his throttle pedal uh, and it was just completely worn out. Like he had to work so hard for that result. So, so hard. So on a weekend where he was quite, you know, quite stressed, you could see on uh, Thursday when the announcement hadn't formally come through uh, that he was going to be at Renault, even though everyone knew he was going to be at Renault next year. He was stressed. Then the next day, he looked so relaxed, and finally, things seemed to be coming right for him. I do wonder if he's going to be in that car in Malaysia, um, and whether that something quite brutal is going to happen between now and then, and whether we see Gasly taking his Toro Rosso drive. Uh, it does look as if that is a possibility. I think it's less of a possibility than it was. There's still time for something to happen, but my understanding is that obviously Palmer had a, had a sixth place. The big problem Renault have got is that they've got a second driver wasn't scoring points. Well, now he has done. And it's a little bit harder to maybe justify paying him off to do nothing, etc. And I, I think that result may have changed things, but that's for that's for Renault to decide. It's amazing, isn't it? Get fired, get your best result in F one. Yeah, yeah, you know, it happens, doesn't it? And to be fair to Palmer, I suppose we should we should talk about sports level. He has had a lot of bad luck this season. He has done a lot of not getting the most out of the car this season as well. But I think it's very, very easy when you're dealing with top-level sport to underestimate how difficult it is to deliver that sort of performance under that sort of pressure. Because although he was publicly very confident, he was constantly batting away questions. Yeah, I've got a contract, I'll be in the car. People keep asking me this, nothing's changed. He knows what's at stake, not just for the rest of the season, but also for the fact he's kind of clinging on to a to an outside chance of just maybe being able to get a drive, say, at Williams next season. And so he needs to deliver performances performances like this i think this was probably his first clean weekend of the year so that just shows how tough it's been for him uh, and like you were saying the speculation about the axe kind of hanging over mm-hmm. him can't have helped him either uh, admittedly it was a race in which if you took your advantage if you took the advantage you could you could really get a good result out of it and he did that he didn't put you know didn't really put a foot wrong it is unfortunate that he scored his best result at a time when it looks like he's going to be out of F1. But all he can do now is, just, if he can keep hold of his seat, is just keep doing things like that. And that's the only chance he's really got of maybe staying on the grid next year. Just to, to go back to the potential 
switch around, Anthony, just explain the kind of landscape we're seeing. Now, obviously, Science has got his Renault deal. That was the prerequisite of Renault letting Toro Rosso end its engine deal early so they could have the Honda engines, which was confirmed. And there's a there's a very enjoyable podcast you can listen to about what went wrong for McLaren and Honda with Stuart Codling and, and Ben Anderson. You'll be able to find that in our in our feed. I'll have to give that a quick plug here. So that allowed the Honda deal to go to Toro Rosso. That allowed McLaren to get shot of Honda and get the Renault engine deal. So science was almost the first domino in place. So that's for next season. So what what's the kind of, kind of landscape surrounding a move? Because there are all sorts of different scenarios we're hearing about who might be in a Renault and who might be in a Toro Rosso for, for Malaysia. Well, one scenario has it that Palmer would be fired immediately, irrespective of his contract, that he'd be paid off um, out of his contract. Uh, Science would go straight into the Renault seat. Uh, Pierre Gasly would come up to Toro Rosso, and that could potentially happen for Malaysia. Um, one, one little chat I had with somebody over the weekend said that Gasly had been measured for overalls and was being prepared for the drive. This, this is the kind of stuff, as we all know, that you hear in the paddock and sometimes isn't true, but often it's stuff that does have a germ of truth in it. So I don't think it's beyond the bounds of possibility that that will happen. We do know that Toro Rosso, um, for their part in the past, have been very decisive, shall we say, about driver movements. And if they do want to promote someone or get rid of someone, they, they have very little compunction about doing it. There are a lot of reasons why it could happen, could be made to happen. Renault really want to get science in the car earlier. They want to push uh, for fifth in the Constructors' Chairmanship. So it's in their interest to get him in the car as soon as possible. I know Jolien scored points in Singapore, but on the balance of it, Carlos is going to be a more consistent point scorer towards the end of the year. It will also kind of give him a good head start into next year. To a Rosso side, it would be good to get Gasly in the car for yeah. a few races towards the end of this year, ahead of next year as well. So it kind of, on both sides, you can see why both are pushing for it. But then you've got Palmer in the middle who wants to try and save his future. So Yeah, yeah I mean, it certainly adds up. I think the, the race result might give them pause to think again. Because I think that's the, that's the way they justify doing it. Because there is a cost attached to it, obviously, yep. for Renault. And it's very, very easy to say, well, this guy's not scoring any points. So, bin him. But then it's like, well, hang on, now he just has started. But it's also one swallow doesn't make a summer, does it? So, there, w- there will be some some discussions, well, discussions Hulk, going Hulk on. could have finished fourth, probably, wouldn't he? Um, yeah. Had his car not failed, um, and had he not had the problems that he had. I mean, he was looking very strong. Hulkenberg drove brilliantly, and yeah. he was a step faster than Palmer. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. There's a point where he was threat- almost threatening Bottas's third place as yeah, well. So. so so that shows the performance potential of that car. It's clearly a decent car now, having had a sort of slightly shaky start to the year. It's looking consistently pretty quick. Um, it's way faster than eighth in the championship. You know, So fifth is a realistic target. Sergio Perez was fifth. Not a great deal to say about his race, but Force India wasn't brilliant around Singapore. Had, it, had that Stegosaurus down the spine of the, yeah. the engine cover. 30 plus little winglets primarily i think designed to better channel the airflow as much as uh, generate downforce but it's good to see there they're still pushing but that's fairly standard perez fare in in a, in a, in a positive re- re- way re-signed for next year we should note well that's exactly it because obviously the driver market landscape is quite interesting we should say that toro rosso is still not officially done uh perez is in at force india alongside ocon so that's set so what have we got? We've got a Williams seat alongside Lance Stroll, the one that Felipe Massa currently inhabits. Massa is a contender. Two Toro Rosso seats with Kvyat, Pierre Gasly, Nobuharu Matsushita, the Honda protege, Honda are keen to have in the mix, but he, he could, but he's very unlikely to be able to get the necessary super license points to be a contender for, for the seat to drive next year. So that probably puts him out of, of the equation. But I guess Williams is the interesting one, isn't it? There's also the seat at McLaren, which I know Fernando Alonso is probably going to get it, but that's not being signed of course, off no. yet. I was, that, that's, there. that's an interesting one, actually. That's I was kind of taking that one as a given because yeah. I can't see him going anywhere else. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Potentially two Sauber drives as well. Two Ferrari juniors heading towards that one uh, in Giovinazzi and, uh, and Leclerc. <laughs> wow. But, yeah, Someone uh, disagrees with you, Ed. <laughs> the weather gods getting involved in the driving market. But, yeah. but Williams is the really interesting one because that's the one which has the most sort of pathways for where it could go. And we've seen an interesting new candidate emerge, Anthony. Well, the Kubitz uh, um, story uh, bubbled up again over the weekend. This this one is, a, I think, a very interesting twist. His relationship with Renault has, his contractual relationship at least, has ended for now. But it appears that Williams are ready to run the 2014 car test program that they put in place for Lance Stroll to get him requisite mileage and experience of a Formula One car. Uh, They're prepared to do that for Robert. And the funding for that would come from, as I understand it, a Polish oil company who are very keen to help Robert get into Formula One. 
any Zlotties that are coming towards uh, motorsport are being channeled in Robert's direction because he's still a massive star in Poland. He is, by all accounts, the biggest sports star in, in Poland by miles. So there's a huge amount of um, support behind him to make something happen. So I think funding for that program would be in place. And from what I gather, Williams are willing to do it. And we, we might see that happen, announcements that effect very soon. It doesn't mean he's going to get a race drive. This is all about giving him the mileage that needs to be covered to understand fully whether or not he's fit enough to drive a race at race pace of a race distance, which is what the Renault programme wasn't able to establish. I think it would be a great sign-in for Williams if they do. Uh, if the, if the programme that they put him through proves that he's capable of doing it next year, because it, think of the PR that they'd get out of it next mm. year. It's a great story to have him coming back into Formula One. Uh, he's considered one of the quickest drivers uh, of this era. So why wouldn't you want to see what he can do right now? It's definitely worth them evaluating him. It's worth a look. On a personal level, I'd very much like to see Kubica back in F1. However, I have to add the caveat here that Renault have looked at him and it's not just that they've not established decisively whether or not he'd be able to make a comeback at a good level. There are legitimate questions in that he's basically steering one-armed. Now, that's unfortunate. There's a reason why Grand Prix drivers have two arms and they train properly and hard. Tiny disadvantages can translate into something quite big. So that's my big concern with Kibitza. So if they were to sign him, I'd think, great, you know, all credit to them for, for giving him a go. Kibitza a, a was a wonderful driver and I'm sure he'd still be competent enough to be fine. I don't, I don't think he'd be a massive menace or a danger or anything, but it just concerns me what the motivation of a team would be to, to do that. Williams are actually about to try and answer the question in as, in as rational a way as it can be answered Fair. by giving him a test programme. If as a result of that they say, nope, he's still wanting, they've done the right thing because the Renault programme, just to strip it down, there was the, there was the 2014, no, the 2012 car test, which was basically very similar to the car that Robert last raced. Very familiar with that. And it was a private test with just him. It was just him on track. Then we had the Hungary test, um, which was, in terms of outright pace, apparently did some very quick laps, but the overall race pace, long distance runs were uh, fluctuated. But it wasn't clear whether that was experience with the engine tyres. He's never raced Pirelli tyres um, or his fitness in the broader sense, not simply cardiovascular fitness. Um, so, you know, questions remain. Um, the other thing with the Renault situation that I think is worth mentioning is that there was a huge amount of pressure to get Carlos Sainz in that seat, which is just not being factored into the Kubica position. It wasn't It wasn't like he was a shoo-in for that drive. As has now become completely apparent, getting Sainz in that seat was key to uh, Toro Rosso Honda and McLaren Renault. So there's an awful lot riding on Carlos Sainz getting that drive, which is kind of nothing to do with Robert Kubica, actually. Anyway, but that's a sort of side issue. But it's, it's, it's worth bearing in mind. I think Williams are doing, doing the right thing. And I also think, why wouldn't they? Because it is an unanswered question. Therefore, you should try and answer the question. Because if you... If you have got Robert Kubitz, or even 99% of his passability, almost for free, that's a, that's a pretty good, uh, I'd say that's a driver worth worth putting in your car for a year. I think William's got nothing to lose by doing it. We touched on some of the other driver market areas. Fernando Alonso, I think it's going to be a little bit longer before that situation's going to be going to be resolved. I don't think we're going to be getting to Malaysia and suddenly it's announced. Well, I, that, that there's a clock a, running on it. but heard a little whisper that we should expect something in Austin. Austin, that seems reasonable. Mm. Enough time to enough time to do it. Talking about the fact he can do Le Mans, for example. What would you do if you're Fernando Alonso, Lawrence? I think I'd only want to sign up for one year. Um, and I think I'd want all those add-ons, like I'm allowed to do Le Mans and I'm allowed to do this, that and the other. I'd, I'd basically ask for everything because McLaren need him uh, and he knows that. Um, and then that is the best in both worlds for him, isn't it really? So I'd, yeah, I'd ask for the world. If he can get a seat for the Indy 500, say, which actually will be harder now, he's no longer a Honda driver. I doubt, I'm not entirely convinced Honda would be delighted to have Alonso back in a back in a car, so we might have to go down the Chevrolet route, should we say? That maybe clashes with Renault, but you know, if you if he says, "Well, I want a deal whereby if I'm not in the top four of the championship after the first few races, I, I'm allowed to do Indy," you've kind of got to say, "Okay, try it." But it's there for him, isn't it? And obviously, the, I think the key stumbling block there is how much how much he's going to be paid. Yeah, because uh, McLaren they've taken a big hit now, losing Honda financially. Yeah. I mean, potentially, you know, by by some measures, more than a hundred million pounds a year, and they're going to have to pay for Honda's wages because uh, Honda paid those. So it's a big financial reverse for McLaren. I do think actually this whole thing. I know I know we shouldn't probably get too sidetracked into this. I think it shows 
the fact that this deal has happened shows the absolute pressure McLaren were under to get results because this isn't a strategic move, the Renault thing. This is, we've just got to get some points on the board next year. We've got to have a car that is credible and sensible. The, the Honda thing, when Ron signed it, it was all about strategy and, you know, five-year plan, ten-year plan, whatever it was. It was like, this will make us a great team again. It didn't work. And after three years of it not working, you can just sense the relief now at McLaren that they can at least look at next season and think, all right, we should be able to, you know, without trying too hard, get into Q3 in, in Melbourne. And we should therefore be able to race for good points positions and podiums. That's what this is all about. It's, 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 it's short-termism, but, but I think this has, it does smack slightly of desperation as well. They just they just wanted something sensible again, and the Renault engine was the only one that was that yeah. was possible to get. So, yeah, yeah it, it's a big financial undertaking, isn't it? And yeah. I can see why they want to keep Alonso because he's their star player, if you like, and there's not really anywhere else for him to go. It's a strange scenario for Alonso, but I agree, Lawrence. I think he'll he'll be wanting to do a very flexible short term deal. The one, then, one thing to remember with McLaren is that sorry to cut across you, but um, this often gets forgotten that they are backed by the Bahraini Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, Mantalica. So, you know, McLaren have potentially got a channel into more than eight billion worth of funding. So, any notion that McLaren can't afford to do this is, is simply wrong. It doesn't mean that it's not expensive and it won't put a hit on their bottom line, but they can afford it, you know, and that decision has been made that yes, we will live without this Honda funding because there is an alternative source of funding. They're not Williams, who are basically a publicly listed company who live or die by their own. Um, profitability there is a huge um, pool of money that can be diverted towards that organization well the big question of course is how long can you afford it for or is there a willingness to that's to the afford question it for? Yeah, that, that's yeah. the limiting factor yeah. but you're absolutely right to, to point that out yeah there is access to, to that that funding so it's not like they're going to get three races into next season and not have a budget they will have a budget and in fact Zach Brown was fairly emphatic when asked about it that even if they're going to pay Alonso a large chunk of money and now that bill's falling to them it's not going to affect the the budget for the operation of the team for developments etc so it, it's very much seen as a seen as a bolt on and i think you do have to go yeah you have to go to your board and say right this is what it's going to cost this is what we need in order to in order to do that now lawrence toro rosso honda are going to fin- be in the top 3 of the championship next year is that, is that the uh, is that the official position of of honda well that's what they said in the press conference when they were asked about it brilliant um, bit of managing <laughs> expectations they've learned well i think um I think what you take from that is that they want to be in the top three. That's their goal. I, it's unfortunate that that's what they said. And obviously there is that inner belief that that's what they want to do. They're obviously, they're in this sport to, to get results. The reality of it is it, if they can get a top three with McLaren, the chance of them trying to do that with Toro Rosso uh, is even less likely. Honda have got a big project ahead of them um it's a massive challenge to join a team like Toro Rosso it's a, such a small operation compared to McLaren their view on it is that it's a smaller operation they're more open to change they're more willing to get on board with Honda's ideas that's that's why they think this is going to be a success whether in in that happens in reality is I don't know well it's going to be interesting isn't it because if it starts badly next season the pressure is going to ramp up and it's all going to be it's going to be the kind of same old narrative I must admit I did think it was rather foolish for them there's nothing wrong with setting big goals. Just say, yeah, we want to be in the top three eventually. How long it takes us to get there, we don't know. You know, we just want to get better day after day. And just, just buy yourself a little bit of a lack of pressure that comes from joining with a smaller team. But it's, um, on the one hand, you can say you admire their ambition. But on the other hand, you've got to say, come on, try and try and learn. Well, Toros have never finished third in the championship. I'm sure that that's correct. And their best is six, wasn't it? They were six yeah, in which 2008. Oh, wait, when they won that one brilliant race. Yeah, and they um, flirted with that level over the past few years, haven't they? So, yeah. So, you know, it, that's, that's and, perfectly achievable. And you don't finish top three in the championship without two world-class drivers in your car, generally, and and probably one of the three best engines. So Toros appears to have none of the constituent <laughs> elements to achieve this stated goal. So... Um, Unless the Honda, I mean, I mean the, the, the thing that could happen is the Honda is amazing. It develops amazingly over the winter and they've got this incredible rocket in the back of the car. Now, that would be funny. <laughs> and I would love to see that if it is the fastest car on the straight. You know, it's simply a, a total rocket um, down the Monza straights, leaving Mercedes trailing in its wake. That would be hilarious. Fernando Alonso's engines just failed at the side of the track watching yeah. this Torosso <laughs> Honda in the lead, just yeah. going, oh, not yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, happened yeah. again. Yeah. The curse of Alonso. Yeah, yeah it's just, uh, just one of those things that. 
Yeah, you, just just because of the circumstances, there's just that tiny thing in the back of your mind thinking, oh, something like that could happen. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think Honda's got a lot of convincing to do before people will be taking them seriously as a a force to do that. You know, what they need to do next year is have a, a good solid season, see progression through the year, and then you can start to think, well, okay, maybe together with Toro Rosso can grow. And of course, there's also the possibility down the line of a Red Bull deal all sorts of question marks about whether Renault will continue with Red Bull. There's a quite a complicated engine landscape with the new engine deal, uh, the new engine regulations for 2021. Aston Martin, Porsche waiting in the wings. Obviously, Aston Martin going to be the title sponsor of Red Bull, a story that uh, Autosport broke over the weekend. There's quite a few possibilities there. We could see a Red Bull Honda potentially winning the championship. I'm not sure Red Bull would be delighted with that idea. I certainly don't think they'd like to be forced to get a Honda engine. I think they'd like to look at it, and if it gets really good, think, oh, we'll have that. Well, they're in a nice position to do that, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's um, it's it's strange. There's so much uncertainty, as you were saying, Anthony, with McLaren getting the Renault engine as, as effectively as a stopgap. Presumably, they'll be working for something bigger and better down the line. Uh, some kind of works deal will appeal to them because no matter what they say about, I mean, Zach Brown basically did describe it as effectively a works deal because they've got the same engine as Renault. But you know, you you don't have the same rights. They can't do what Mercedes do, and to and fro between the chassis and the engine side to try and optimise the package. So it, it's not a, a works deal in the truest sense of the word. And there is literally a Renault works team down the paddock. So they are a customer team. You know, Renault does serve its customers pretty well in that regard. But McLaren will be looking for something. So there's, there's an enormous amount of uncertainty. Yeah. What engine regs are we going to be... Um, well, actually, yeah. Well, what, yeah, slightly further down the line again, but what engine format, what technical regs have we got coming on the, on the engine front? Is Porsche waiting in the wings as well? So, yeah, as you say, huge uncertainty. It's all, all a bit of a mess, Co- Cosworth, it? potentially, um, looking at being an independent en- engine supplier. And McLaren even hinted they might be interested in doing theirs, depending on how the regulations are formed for 2021 onwards. So, Need to get on and sort out the regulations, really, don't they? I think that's the uh, that, that's top of the agenda. Paging Ross Braun. Well, there we go. That's, that's going to be going to be his task. Uh, but looking back at, uh, at the weekend, obviously, we've covered most of the, uh, the, the interesting aspects of the race. Stoffel van Dorn. Uh, picked up his best finish in seventh. Lance Stroll, a decent run to eighth. A few little errors along the way, but but bank more points. Ten place gain. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. bad on paper. No, no problem. And Roman Grosjean and Esteban Ocon rounding out the points. But this this race is just going to be remembered for the, for the championship implications, isn't it? So also for some of the um, some of the still imagery that's that's resulted. I mean, I think those shots have sparked up Ferraris gliding, take each other off at the front of the at the head of the pack. That's become an iconic. Set yeah. of images. A couple, a few, few photographers got the Mandy Hone, Lorenzo Blanco. I'm sure others got got versions of that shot. Um, we're just going to look back on that. Do you remember the day that the Ferraris took each other off at the start of the Singapore Grand Prix? It's, it's become a Formula One classic image. Yeah, yeah, no, LAT images. With Mandy Hone had some great, uh, great shots of it, and it's, yeah, it just it just sums it all up, doesn't it? Yeah, and there's the one with um, Kimi harpooning Vettel. Um, That's the one that Andy got from above, wasn't it? It actually looked like it, it speared into him sideways, and you can see the sort of the, <laughs> the angle of impact. Um, yeah, there's some great, great shots, and that's why this race will be remembered for a long time, hugely significant in the season. But it's just one of those things that will stick in the mind, and it's got the imagery to to go with it. So, yeah, a huge weekend on and off track. So, thanks very much to Anthony Rollinson and to Lawrence Barreto for joining me to dig into that and Sebastian Vettel's error, the engine madness, the driver market, plenty to go on. So, keep an eye on Autosport.com for all the latest news and, and goings on. There's all manner of things that could happen over the next few weeks in the driver market. So, I'm sure things will be moving on a daily basis. Check out our plus subscriber area we have for 94p a week, all manner of in depth features race analysis the ever controversial driver ratings singapore grand prix by me rather than ben anderson but please if you disagree with them abuse ben on social media because that's always always funnier also f1 racing magazine out every month what's what's the current uh, the current shelf issue uh, clash of the titans where we dissect the vettel versus hamilton rivalry although we called that one uh, to be on sale just before this Grand Prix, when they were three points apart. So it looked good before we went on sale. Things have changed dramatically <laughs> since we've gone on sale. But there we are, such are the vagaries of uh, publishing a monthly magazine. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to it free. We come out at least every week, often more regularly. In fact, if you look back in our feed, there was a Colin McRae special looking back at, at his career and his legacy on the 10th anniversary of, of his passing plus the McLaren Honda What Went Wrong podcast. It's all manner of interesting stuff in the archive, interview with Mario Andretti, Rick Mears. You can look back and, and see all the things we were wrong about in the past.
So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This is it. This is the year. Enough dreaming about growing my business online. It's time to get serious about selling in my style, as big as I want to grow, because there's nothing I can't do. It's time to get Shopify and take my business to the next level. Whoa, someone's ready to take on the new year. Oh, oh, I thought I was talking to myself there. But heck yeah, 2023 is my year. That's not your average resolution. That's a revolution. It's It's a a new New year's Year's revolution. Start selling with Shopify to join the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand. From templates that make site design simple to customizations that let you grow at your pace. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free 22. That's shopify.com slash free 22. Go to shopify.com to start your New Year's revolution today. Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.